2: Tortoise.
0: Hello, and welcome to this bonus episode of the News Meeting. I'm in the studio at Tortoise with my colleague, Stephen Armstrong, and we're joined by Dr. Brian Klass, Associate Professor in Global Politics at University College London. Hello, Brian. Hello. Now, Brian, I've got the book in front of me. It's bright yellow, and it's called Fluke, Chance, Chaos, and Why Everything We Do Matters. And I'm going to start with a confession. Sometimes... Reading books prior to interviews is more, as we might say, spinach than cheesecake in tortoise parlance. Um, not at all the case here. This is, I'm going to say it, an interdisciplinary tour de force. And I think interdisciplinary studies is, is something that UCL is big on, isn't it? Mm, indeed. Um, but it's also personal for you. Can you start by telling us this story which you introduce? in the introduction you come back to, about your own family and how that affected you.
2: Yeah, so this, this story is from 1905 in a rural farmhouse in a place called Keeler, Wisconsin, and uh, a woman named Clara Maudlin Jansen, who's got four young children, and uh, she snaps at one point, and presumably has something like postpartum depression. We don't know exactly mental health wise, because of course they didn't have the lexicon for this in 1905. But uh, she tragically decides to kill her four children, and then take her own life. And she does this and uh, her husband comes home and finds all the kids and his his wife dead. And the reason it's in the introduction to Fluke is because this is my great-grandfather's first wife. And so he ends up uh, remarrying several years later to my great-grandmother and uh, produces my grandfather on and on down the chain of events to me. And so I did not know about this until I was in my mid 20s. My dad showed me a newspaper headline of, uh, terrible act of insane woman was the headline. And, um, it was a, it was a revelation, not just this dark part of my family history, but also the, the realization that but for the mass murder of these four children, I would not exist and you would not be listening to my voice. And I think this is the, part of the origin story of me thinking a lot more about the sort of ripple effects, some visible, some invisible, that reshape our lives and, and reshape our world. And that's the sort of ethos that is the uh, underpinning framework for Fluke.
0: Um, we're broadly familiar, I think, with the butterfly flaps its wings theory and a very sort of easy access point into chaos theory for, for lay people, but as a, a science phenomenon. How do you make the leap from butterflies flapping their wings in the natural world to butterflies flapping their wings in our everyday lives, not just as a matter of curiosity, and it is a, a matter of sort of constant fascination, That, but for the fact that my parents got together when they did, I wouldn't exist, you know. Uh, but, uh, But how do you make the leap from the natural history context to the history context?
2: Yeah, I've been sort of perplexed by this because chaos theory is mostly uh, applied to this, the realm of science. It's a highly verified theory, and it basically, in the jargon, it says uh, sensitivity to initial conditions, which basically means any small fluctuations in a system over a period of time can produce very large changes. And we're all familiar with this because we know that the weather is not predictable beyond you know seven to ten days. It's because of chaos theory. If the measurement is even a tiny bit off, then the weather prediction will be wildly wrong. Now, humans are made up of physical matter. <laughs> I mean, our, our lives unfold according to the laws of physics as well. And so I think the sort of blind spot that my discipline of political science or social science more generally has is to try to cram the world of chaos into neat and tidy models that uh, have you know, a few variables to explain everything. I mean one of the things that I also find really perplexing is that when I talk to people about this they say oh yeah but that's not really how the world works you know that's the that's the the noise not the signal and I say well you know whenever we think about traveling back in time everyone sort of intuitively accepts this idea that like if you talk to the wrong person or if you squish the wrong bug or you have the wrong conversation you could change the world change the future even delete yourself from from the future and and you know eliminate your existence but like we don't ever think about that in the present, but the nature of cause and effect doesn't change whether you're in the past or in the present. It's the same. And so, you know, my point of view is that this is constantly happen- happening to us. We are constantly having chaos divert our lives. Mm-hmm. and And the subtitle of the book, the third part, Why Everything we do Matters, I, I think I worried when I wrote that that it was going to be interpreted as some like b s you, know, you know abstract abstraction or whatever. I mean it literally. I mean, mm. I, I mean it completely literally. I mean it that there is a, a change that is happening in how the world unfolds with every action we have. Some of them are highly visible and some of them are completely invisible to us. But I genuinely think that you know, whether you stop to hit the snooze button or not, you are changing the course of your life in some way. And I, I think that is a scientific truth even though we basically just ignore it because it's so bewildering to talk about.
1: There's one example that you open the book with, and in fact, you should probably retell it because uh, I will get it wrong. It, it, in abbreviation, it's about a, a couple going on holiday in Kyoto. And then there's a supplementary question I have, but, but can you remind me of the details of that story?
2: Yeah, so the opening story to the book is about a couple that goes to Kyoto, Japan in 1926 on vacation. And they stay at this place called the Miyako Hotel. They look around the city. They fall in love with it. And it's sort of that experience lots of people have of going on vacation and getting a soft spot for a place. Now, this shouldn't matter, except for 19 years later, the husband in the couple, Henry Stimson, ends up as America's Secretary of War. And the target committee, which is in charge of where, of deciding where to drop the atomic bomb, universally agrees that Kyoto is the top choice. It's a strategic target, as has propaganda value, etc. So Stimson gets this memo, basically, and springs to action. And the generals try to block him. They call it his pet city and so on. But he twice goes to President Truman to beg him to take Kyoto off the list. And Truman eventually relents, and so the first bomb gets dropped on Hiroshima instead. The second bomb is supposed to go to a place called Kokura, um, but as the bomber is approaching Kokura, there's briefly cloud cover that obscures the bombing site, Unless they drop the second atomic bomb in some random field, they decide to go to the secondary target, which is Nagasaki. So quite literally, the reason why hundreds of thousands of people died or lived in these four cities is because of a cloud and a 19-year-old vacation. And I use this to explain, you know, not just the aspects of sort of chance in in, in life. The Japanese have this term of kokura's luck to explain people who unknowingly uh, avoid disaster. But also because when you think about modeling, right, so much of our world runs on modeling, so much of my profession runs on modeling. How far down the list of variables would you put the vacation histories of U.S. government officials if you were trying to figure out where the U.S. is going to drop the atomic bomb? How much are you going to put meteorology into that model, right? And so I think there's lots of stuff in the world that actually pivots on minor changes or minor effects that are often obscure or, or tiny. And our models are always gravitating towards big causes for big effects, never small causes for big effects. And I think that's a, a real mistake that chaos theory highlights.
1: Also, you talk about the assassination of the Archduke Ferdinand and the, the, the series of random and extremely uh, weird events that lead to that happening. And what I wonder with both those things, you're talking about huge global conflicts, and those are specific events within that. Do you think that the, that the decision to drop the bomb is very clearly, as you say, that has a huge impact. Do you think that the war would have happened anyway? Do you think that you know, if we did were to assassinate Adolf Hitler, if, you know, do you think there's certain forces which are just per- in motion? You, you, know, you do say that Marx and Hegel are wrong to, to to talk about progress, but do you think that that idea of vast forces in history is also valid?
2: I love this question because I I realize that I think about the world differently from some people when I posed this to a historian friend. And he said, well, yeah, but that's like trivia because the U.S. was going to win the war anyway, whether they dropped the bomb on Kyoto or Hiroshima. I said well yeah but like the way you win a war matters whether kyoto exists or not matters right and i think the the way that i think about this question is that we impose categories that don't actually exist on the world right so whether you win the war or not is a binary category what happens is a continuous variable there's not there's not just a category that's two outcomes so if kyoto doesn't exist right then for decades upon decades, different Japanese people are going to emerge as major players in Japanese politics. One example of this, by the way, is there's a, a person who's uh, he's basically the meteorologist who ended up producing the F scale for tornadoes. He was in Kyoto. He's the person who came up with lots of the ideas that allow us to basically prevent massive deaths from storms by giving us warnings before tornadoes and, and hurricanes and so on. So, you know, there's there's ripple effects we could not possibly imagine. I think about this as well, with, you know, with 9-11. It's like, OK, yeah, like the, the, the attack was probably going to succeed if it had happened on 9-10 or 9-12. But it might have unfolded differently because on 910, on September 10th, there was storms in the United States. On 911, it was an incredibly blue sky. So all the planes took off on time, right? In addition to that, Flight 93, which was taken down uh, in, in rural Pennsylvania, if there's a different slate of passengers, are slightly less brave and they don't take that down that plane and it knocks out the White House or it knocks out the Capitol, American politics is gonna be different, right? So the binary is, does the terrorist attack succeed or fail? The binary is, does you know the US win the war or not? The world of history is a continuous variable. It's not categories, and so I think that's a mistake we make, where we try to figure out how to place these things in yes or no answers. And I, you know, I think that if if ten people different had died in Kyoto, the world would be slightly different. It's the question is how much it it actually matters on human timescales, right? So, for example, power amplifies contingency. So if Donald Trump has a bad mood, that's going to have more effect. Or Joe Biden has a bad mood, that'll have more effect than if I do. But I still think that if I have a bad mood, it does change history slightly. It's the question of, of how much we can see it and how much it's actually going to have consequences for a certain number of people.
1: You will know this theory better than me, but there is the the, the concept of identity uh, and your political beliefs. So that there's the, the idea that you can have a set of beliefs which can, which can change according to events. And then there's a set of beliefs which make up your identity. And they then become, attacks on those beliefs become existential threats to you. And the, the classic example is at one point, the Catholic Church was so invested in the world being flat that it would kill you if you said the world was round. Now the Catholic Church, that's not a big deal. It's not part of their identity. So sure, okay, so we're not going with the flat earth argument anymore. And there's there's some work being done on, on vaccines um, persuasion in America where you divide anti-vax people by group and try a variety of different ways of persuading them and all that happens is you either they either remain as anti-vax or more anti-vax when you talk to them because it's no longer a belief it's part of the identity to remove that becomes Uh, a threat to you and your sense of self, your sense of who you are. There's a very interesting passage in in your book, and I know we are not locusts, but there's a very interesting passage about, you talk about when the locusts gather together and there comes a point when the locust swarm is large enough that if one locust decides to go in a different direction, at that moment, the locusts then descend on that and cannibalize it. And you get this feeling that there comes a point when enough people feel that their identity is threatened by a different belief, that if you dare, even if you're part of that group, And you say, I'm not so sure about this, that, well, then you don't get ripped to shreds, but that becomes an even greater threat to your membership of the group. And those become really important things. Your group will turn on you if you step away. So I think it's it's very easy for those perceptions to continue because it's too dangerous to, to stop believing it.
2: I agree with this completely. I mean, I think this is the, but this is asymmetrical in the United States because you don't have Biden supporters wearing hats and putting like weird images of Biden riding an eagle on their pickup trucks and so on. Like, there is a fusion of identity with Trumpism, and I think this is something that's really, really noticeable living here, but often going home to the United States is. You drive around. I mean, the number of flags in people's yards is enormous. I mean, you just see, and and they're sometimes next to each other, right? Like you. It you was ever you, thus. What do you say? It was ever thus. Yeah, but it's it's getting. I think it's getting more pronounced in in my observation anywhere. I'm not talking about American flags. I'm no, talking but, about like Trump flags next to Black Lives Matter flags, right? I mean, the, the, where you have sort of these um depictions of political identity visually and i was particularly struck by this in 2021 the first time i went home after the pandemic happened uh where i could tell you people's political identity based on their masking i mean it was complete and, and it was over the top it was like um i saw i saw you know people who were getting in other people's face unmasked even though there were mandates in place and at the same time on the left i saw a woman i'm not i'm from minneapolis where there's um you know, a huge number of lakes and so on. And I saw a woman in the middle of a lake in a canoe, alone, like half a mile from anyone else, in an N95. And it was because it was a projection. Wait, wait, wait. What was she doing on the in the canoe? She was canoeing, alone, oh, okay. in the middle of a lake, like half a mile from another human being, in an N95 mask, right? And, oh, and it was a, it was a depiction of political identity. I care about science. I'm a serious scientific believer. So, what what I'm saying is that you know this is something where I've seen this ramp up during the Trump years, where people's dress, their behavior, their, I mean, they wear T-shirts, they wear hats, all this stuff. It's depictions of political identity. I think you're right. And this is one of the reasons why there's a ratcheting effect, because if you've been in the Trump group since 2015, since the beginning, and you haven't broken over Charlottesville or January 6th or any of these other things, any additional thing causing you to break is an acknowledge. I mean, the cognitive dissonance is massive. It's like you have to acknowledge that the person you were was wrong. And so I think that's why he has such a strong grip on, on the party. But it also means that you know, it is worrying because the number of people who are willing to vote based on, I mean, frankly, delusional beliefs is, is really high in the United States. And that's going to define our politics for a long time.
0: Brian, let me read you a few lines from the book from page 167. You, this follows a passage in which you've been dealing with this distinction between what I was trained to call vast impersonal forces and the the power of individuals. And you say, I've studied power and those who hold it for more than a decade. And I've always found this view, that is the view that it's the, in this case, the institution of the presidency, not the person. I've always found this view of history bizarre. The presidency matters, but so does the president. The Cuban Missile Crisis might have unfolded differently, not only if JFK or Khrushchev had been different leaders, but also if one of them had had a mood swing at a crucial moment. That viewpoint was rare among those who researched the American presidency, the more sophisticated institutionalists. Then Donald Trump rose to power. And Trump's rise is an essential part of the context of this book, isn't it? Tell us a story about the occasion when arguably the die was cast in terms of his personal resolve to run. And then, like Stephen, I have a (laughs) follow-up.
2: Yeah, so there's there's speculation around Trump that uh, the moment he decided to run for president for the 2016 election – was at the 2011 White House Correspondents' Dinner. And this is one of the most interesting days, I think, in modern American history. Because first off, Obama tells a joke about Trump that just humiliates him. Publi- and, and you can see Trump seething in his seat. He's not taking the joke well. The joke is something to the effect of, uh, you know, I really feel bad for you, Donald, because you must be kept up at night by the decisions you have to make on Celebrity Apprentice while I have to only deal with very, very simple questions as the president, right? So he's humiliating Trump. Now, the the slight aside trivia of this is that Barack Obama had basically launched the order to kill Osama bin Laden hours before this speech, went back to the situation room and watched this unfold. So it it hammers home the point of the joke, right? But whether this is true or not, I think there's this question about, you know, what if that joke hadn't been written? What if it hadn't been told? What if it was slightly different? What if Trump had a different sense of humor? I mean, these are the questions that I think when you're playing with that level of consequence, the tiniest changes can have big effects. And I think this is where, you know, also the Trump presidency was obsessed with trying to undo Obama's uh, legislative achievements. I mean, it, it was it was like a, a laser focus on this, in vindictive ways that may have actually hurt Trump's political popularity in some ways. Because you know, f- for example, Obamacare actually became more popular over time, and Trump was trying to dismantle it. So I think there's aspects of this where the, the question is is worth asking: mm. Did the Trump presidency arise from a joke? And whether it's specifically true in that context, I can't get into Trump's head, but. It is totally plausible. And I think there's so much stuff in history where these what ifs end up being sort of seen as lowbrow, especially by people who are, you know, political scientists and so on. Oh, we, we're, we, we don't deal with those what ifs, you know. And I think the idea that like, nobody holds the viewpoint that the U.S. or the world would be the same if Hillary Clinton had won in 2016. It's an absurd. It's an absolutely absurd point of view to hold. And so I think this is the stuff that exposes that some of the institutional aspects and the trends and all the big picture forces are overstating their case, in my view. And you talk
0: quite a lot in the book about contingency versus um, convergence. And I accept it's hard to argue against the view that Trump is contingency and his position in the White House changed history. There There was probably multiple sliding doors moments in those four years, and there may be more uh, if if, if we have another four. But just devil's advocate for a moment, I can perfectly see in 20 years time, a bright historian writing the case for continuity over change in the Trump years. You can already see that Biden has chosen to be the continuity president in terms of trade with China. Uh, you can already see that the um, uh, the, the American uh, desire to have Europe pay more for its defence preceded Trump and will follow after him. You can you can pick out strands of continuity throughout, which uh, history A level question setters will delight in uh, asking their students for. But um, isn't that in a sense uh, the case for history as it as it? as it always has been, and for vast impersonal forces as being still the serious way to look at it?
2: Well, I think think there's a few things I would say about that. First off, I would say that the way that the policies get made matters. Mm. I mean, you imagine that Mitt Romney does the exact same things as Trump. The US would be a different place. I mean, there wouldn't have been the January 6th dimensions to this. There wouldn't have been the streak of authoritarianism, the open racism and so on. I mean, the the policies, yes. I mean, we can say them and and, and see that there is some continuity. But the way the policies are enacted is important. But you're saying here that
0: uh, but for that Correspondence Association dinner Romney might well have been the Republican. No, no, no. I'm not. I'm
2: not, I'm not saying because he he would have been a has been. I think at that right. point. But but I I think it's something where my point is that if you if you swap out the individual, right? right the, so the institutionalist argument would say the presidency is important, the trends are important, the sort of long run of history is important. The counter argument, which I'm making, is that the individual matters a, a heck of a lot, and I think that the way that the Trump administration operated diverted American history in a profound way for 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 what we'll have. Ripple effects for generations, I think. Um, I also think one of the other points is that, and I talk about this a lot in Fluke, is that, you know, the human brain has evolved to detect patterns. We're, We're creatures who are storytelling animals, to use the phrase from Jonathan Gottschall. And this means that what we do is we stitch together a neat and tidy narrative through the messiness of history. And so, yes, of course, there will be a history book written in 20 years that talks all about the rise of Trumpism as an inevitable byproduct of the forces of anti-immigration politics. And so, I mean, you know, if the election had been held at a slightly different moment, Trump might have lost. One of the main reasons I think he did win by a very narrow margin is that uh, the FBI reopened the investigation to Hillary Clinton a week before the election because a congressman from New York once again, was found to have sent an explicit text message to an underage girl. And if he hadn't done that, maybe Trump would have lost because there was 70,000 votes in three states that decided the election, right? And ultimately, the FBI then did say, OK, we're not going to press charges against Hillary Clinton. But they had to look into her again because this laptop that was involved involved some new emails that involved Hillary Clinton. So, you know, I mean, you just look at these things. If the election had been a week later, if the weather had been different, I mean, there's all sorts of things with narrow elections. And you know i i I'm very much of the viewpoint that these ripple effects are ones that we view as imperceptible, but we're drawn as human beings to neat and tidy stories and I think both our journalism and our historians uh, amplify that that sort of linear compa- you know um, projection of history when I don't think that's how history actually works. So, I mean, plenty of people disagree with me. I'm not not saying that's something completely new. I'm just saying that I think we are underplaying the role of contingent small forces to radically reshape the world. Does
0: democracy survive this age of flukes in a time of, as you put it elsewhere in the book, um, sort of obsessive optimization?
2: I think we've engineered a world that's much more prone to flukes. Uh, And I think this is something I worry about. I mean, AI is part of this as well. The the way I make the argument is this. If you think about all of human history, basically every generation except for the last few has been defined by instability in their day-to-day life and not in their global environment of how they live. So hunters and gatherers lived in the exact same kind of world generation after generation for thousands upon thousands of generations, but they didn't know where their food was going to come from. And if the, you know, if the prey didn't arrive, they would starve. So they had what I call local instability, but they had global stability. The world was the same, but the day to day was really unstable. We've completely flipped that. So we have what I call local stability, where you go to Starbucks anywhere in the world and you can get the same drink. And it's very predictable on a day to day basis, how long your commute will take. You're not going to starve, but we have global instability. Which is to say that the world is rapidly changing and rapidly uh swayed by disordered events that are caused by sometimes flukes. I mean, you know, my favorite example of this is is the Arab Spring. It's probably not favorite, it shouldn't be the word, but the but perhaps the best illustration of it is the Arab Spring because a single man lights himself on fire in Central Tunisia and multiple regimes collapse and wars start, right? And you can see the illustration of how we've engineered that with the Suez Canal blockage in 2021, because Never before in human history could a single boat cause $54 billion of economic damage after it gets twisted sideways with a gust of wind. But we've engineered systems that are so brittle that when a little bit of noise enters the system, everything can go wrong. And so you know, I do worry about that, that the, the sort of holy grail of efficiency and optimization uh, has made us much more prone to the upheavals from so-called black swan events.
1: You, I mean... You talk a bit about ai there one of the things that, that you do at one particular point in in the book is you explain the storytelling uh mind of human beings with what is essentially an algorithm you say this happens means this means this i mean you also do a wonderful thing where you talk about the difference between the uh king's dead and the queen died the king's dead and the queen died of guilt the king is dead the queen died of guilt but it wasn't until they found the teeth marks in her, her throat, which is a lovely example of how you move your story on. But the, the these algorithm versions of events now seem to be coming hardwired in the way that we will do business. You, you show how that fails dismally when it comes to apply to the stock market. Do you feel that we are over-algorithming our entire existence and that, that they don't have the facility to deal with chance?
2: Yeah. So I think there's a few things that are worrying about AI. And I'm, you know, there's a very nuanced debate on this, but <clears throat> I think the two things that I worry about is this, is the speed in which things are happening, where we don't always understand why they're happening. So in in, in brief, there was a case in 2010 where um, a single trader in London wiped out trillions of dollars from the stock market because he was playing with the way that the, you know, basically computer systems worked. And I think we're embedding that systemic risk into our economies, into our politics. The bigger problem that I think is more adjacent to some of the core ideas in Fluke is, is a problem that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm riffing off from David Hume, which is basically how can we be sure that the past patterns are going to be indicative of the future outcomes. And <clears throat> what I would say is that AI, because it's trained, machine learning models are trained on training data that is about past patterns, if the world is rapidly shifting in its causal dynamics, those patterns that you use to, to basically drive the algorithm become more dangerous. And I think this is the stuff that we don't always grapple with. I mean, our world, like I grew up in a world that didn't have the internet, right? I mean, like in, in, in people's houses, they, like we had a you know, dial-up modem when I was like 10 years old or whatever. And now you can't do anything without the internet. And so like the world, the speed of change of technology has meant that I think never before in human history have past patterns been least been less predictive of future events. And, you know, AI is is going to have to grapple with that in a really big way If the causal dynamics that the models have been trained on have shifted and it's a really nuanced point that a lot of people don't grasp because they sort of assume that, you know, there's stability in cause and effect patterns. And I don't think that's true. It's also a huge reason why I critique, you know, I'm not going to make any friends on the conference circuit with this book because one of the last chapters is called The Emperor's New Equations. And it's about how a lot of social science is built on models that I think are fundamentally flawed because they don't take into account. What are called non-stationary dynamics, which is to say that the cause and effect mechanism you're trying to model is actually changing over time, and we're not very good at modeling those things.
1: And you also talk about how we, what we can gain from allowing chaos into our lives.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is where, you know, it's, it's an it's an interesting book for me to write in this way from from my own professional background because. Um, you know, there's parts of it where I'm, I'm, you know, I'm almost talking about the meaning of life in the last chapter. Um, and it's, it's because I think when you start to think about the world as like a cosmic accident. I mean, I genuinely believe in my life as a cosmic accident. I think humanity is a cosmic accident. Um, it does pose some profound questions about how we should live, right? And so... I think there's significant upside to uncertainty. I think there's significant upside to the chaos of life. And I think that what we are told all the time is, you know, it's like the life hack checklist existence. Like just squeeze every bit of like serendipity out of your life, make sure everything is 100% efficient, and that will be the best way to live. And I think it's the opposite of the way that you should live. (laughs) So I think, you know, obviously I'm not saying that we go back to hunter-gatherers or some, you know, anti-technology stance, but I think that there is a – a world in which, you know, the sort of serendipity, the chance, the chaos of life, that's actually the stuff that when you look back on the events that made you happiest, they're not usually the planned things with the building blocks of big, wise decisions. They're often the sort of accidental joys. So, I, I you know, I think there's, there's a significant chunk of philosophy that defines the book. And it's because I think I'm taking aim at a worldview that, you know, I held because I grew up in this sort of Western individualist culture um, that I now fundamentally disagree with and i think there's offshoots of that philosophically that that are difficult to grapple with but i think worth contemplating
0: brian thank you we are a cosmic accident and it's not all a bad thing thank you so much for joining us uh the book is fluke subtitle chance chaos and why everything we do matters thanks again for coming uh the book's out this week and i encourage everybody to go out and buy it not just on kindle (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back on Friday with the biggest stories of the week
2: Tortoise.
1: I'm Afua Hirsch
0: I'm Peter Frankopan
1: and in our podcast, Legacy we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history This
0: season we're exploring the life of Cleopatra
1: An iconic life full of romances, sieges, and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her
0: legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today.
1: I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love Cleopatra. She is an icon.